This is Ravelin's podcast, and today we're speaking with Alexander Hall, who is an ex-fraudster turned fraud prevention consultant who now owns his own business called Dispute Defence. And I'll let him introduce himself a bit more in a minute. Um, Today we'll be speaking about the top challenges merchants have faced in 2020 and what we can expect from fraud as we're going into the new year. It's Thanksgiving today and Alexander has so kindly given me his time on a national holiday, so thank you so much. Yeah, no worries. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to be working with Ravelin. Well, we're so excited to have you too, so thank you again. So to kick things off, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your background and how it led you to where you are now? So yeah, um, for about a decade, I was a career criminal. I was what I term as uh, an effective fraudster, uh, doing everything or being involved with everything from organizing methods, authoring methods, uh, creating information, building profiles, uh, checks, credit cards, cash, the whole nine. In 2007 or in 2016, we learned that we were pregnant with our daughter and uh, my wife that if I wanted to be a father, that I needed to clean up my act. Turned myself in on a couple of outstanding charges that existed. My experience in fraud prevention took place with the vape distribution company. They brought me on as the sole uh, fraud investigation or fraud specialist. And um, while I was there, uh, in my first year, I mitigated and prevented a, a loss of about $1.2 million, um, if, if all the math works out. So I felt pretty good with my ROI on that. Um, the ROI for my salary. Um, and then in 2020, when COVID hit, um, the the company ended up dissolving the division that I ended up running. And uh, so I started Dispute Defense. And since being here, uh, I've met a lot of great people. Uh, my eyes have been opened up to a lot of good technologies that are out there. And um, I just know that my, my assessment of the fraud prevention industry as a whole um, is that there's 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 a couple of lacking points. A lot of people are doing great stuff. Do not get me wrong. A lot of people have put a lot of effort and done a lot of great work in their individual uh, pieces of the fraud prevention pie, but there's a lot of gaps in between there. And um, I, I want to help uh, both service providers and merchants um, kind of close those gaps as best as possible by by using uh, my my experience on the other side of the fence. And that's where we're at. And how did you first find yourself getting into fraud? So for me, uh, like with a lot of other people, the gateway was drugs. When I was young, I, I got into drugs, started selling it, started, um, you know, it, it became a lifestyle. And then over time, you wanted to make more money and your moral compass is kind of skewed. So you don't mind doing bigger, badder things. Um, it's kind of like the uh, the frog in boiling water uh fable or, or story um and so i ended up getting into it i saw where the flaws were uh, with the lower level operations and that's when i started to build and develop my own methods all the way up to the point where i was pretty well known in my uh in my area of where i operated and uh to where groups of other people would come to me on, uh, regarding how to use whatever information they came across um but yeah, so to answer your question, the gateway was drugs and, and uh, secondarily was the fact that my moral compass was uh, was left in the glove box during my <laughs> operations. <laughs> and then, so it was when you had your, when you got with your partner and had your children that you decided to make the switch. That was, I did not anticipate that being a father would be as important to me as it ended up being. You know, once I was greeted with the possibility of losing 
um, you know, access, like, you know, losing the potential for being a father, I, I, I decided it was just time. Um, yeah. She, my daughter's been the greatest blessing um, that I could ever imagine. And then my wife is super supportive. My three stepsons are amazing. The family that I am now uh, the head of is is more than I could ever expect in my life. So um, yes, to answer your question, that was all it took. And uh, it means a lot to me. That's so lovely. So in one of our previous conversations, you mentioned that as a fraudster, you were a success, which you just touched on there as well. But you said it was a bad success. And on your LinkedIn, you advertise that you have a master's in fraud um, from your somewhat unconventional school of fraud. So could you talk a bit about your success as a fraudster and what you think makes a successful fraudster <laughs> sure uh so when you're on that side of the fence uh operating as a fraudster you put these conditions upon yourself and others because you have to keep in mind that as you expand a network you end up working with more people who have the potential of getting busted and rolling on you or snitching on you um selling you out to the cops when they get busted so so there's there's a lot of of challenges and obstacles that you want to overcome while you're operating over there that's that you know that could range anywhere from the um the type of network that you hold how these people interact under pressure how these people maintain themselves um also how you hold yourselves i can say that one big um one big factor into what I claim as being a success uh, on that side is the fact that no one under my umbrella um, that was employing any of my methods uh, never did anyone get busted. Um, and that's that's over a, um, well, like I said, that's close to a decade of operations. And additionally, I mean, that's hundreds of people that were doing different things at different times. And um, I, I definitely have the biggest contributor to me being a success over there is the fact that no one got busted under my, um, under my authority, I guess we could say. Um, but then secondarily, um, the, 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 the other contributing factor to being called a success over there is just the knowledge that I accumulated over time, um, how to use what I can, uh, I was able to take information that to 99% of the fraud game would be absolutely worthless, um, but I can take it and make it worth something. Um, typically through math as a payment method um, or understanding how limited information can be used uh, at, at different levels through the checklist building that I've, that I've outlined on my, on my profiles and my, in my content. Um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much what it was. In my opinion, the person who's the most successful is the person who has the best record, the highest success rate, of course, um, no one getting busted and then being resourceful with the information that's presented, knowing where to use it, how to use it, and then, you know, how to get the most out of it the most effective fraudsters are doing stuff that hasn't been identified yet. They're doing things that are multi-system exploits. They're doing things that, that they have full control over at every step. And if something fails, it's a, it's, it's not a high risk situation. The stuff that I was known for and, and why I, in my school of fraud uh, dictations, I guess, what, gives me the opportunity to be a master's uh, degree holder, I guess, is, um, the fact that 80% of my operations have not been identified by the fraud prevention industry as of yet. There aren't any pretty names associated with it. Like, I guess I'm tooting my horn from a bad perspective, but there's no, there's no beating what I was doing. It's called the unbeatable fraud um, and full cycle fraud that I'm, I'm now defining it that way. But I want to bring that to light. The whole goal is to, to close the gap 
between fraud prevention and where uh, effective fraudsters operate. So that's, yeah, that's the story there. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's move on and, and talk about 2020, which has clearly been an extremely difficult year for businesses um, and particularly for online merchants who are having to deal with this huge increase in demand due to COVID um, while also thinking about how to protect themselves from new fraud risks. And then on the other side of the coin, there are those who are struggling and perhaps having to desperately think of how to boost sales um, and keep afloat uh, in these difficult times. So over the past year and in this new normal world, what do you think are the top challenges fraud merchant teams are facing? So there's three things that are that I've identified that are happening. And um, definitely one is the fact that due to COVID, a lot of people moved from in-store retail to e-commerce without proper prevention me measures, without knowing what's waiting for them. So the introduction to CNP fraud, card not present fraud, is definitely... It's already waiting for them. That's not a new trend that's happening, but it is, we see it as a new trend because so many people are making that move from in-store to online. So um, that's one that's being identified and that's going to definitely uh, uh, spike the number of fraud that's going on. That's one. Two is the number of friendly fraud things that are taking on because of exactly what you just said. Uh, there's a lot of desperate people out there who have become unemployed, who have credit cards, who have uh, knowledge of the fact of the power that disputes and, um, and chargebacks have. So they'll go and buy something with money that they don't necessarily want to spend. They'll dishonestly file a chargeback knowing that the issuer will have their back <clears throat> and then, you know, get their money back for the purchase. Um, that's the second one. And, and then the third one is, in my opinion, is policy exploits, where again, dishonest consumers who are otherwise good hearted and, and good, you know, good solid people, um, don't have a problem exploiting policies um, in order to get more than they paid for, because again, desperation, uh, desperate times leads to desperate, desperate measures. And people kind of, again, they leave their moral compass in the glove box when they go shopping. So uh, ahead of the holiday season, um, as if fraudsters uh, gearing up for the holiday season wasn't enough, you also have to take into consideration those three things and keep your eyes open for it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you said that the fraudsters are gearing up for this holiday season, because that leads me nicely onto the next question. Um, so obviously, happy Thanksgiving again, it's holiday season, um, which you're all too aware of as I'm making you work on a national holiday. Um, but, <laughs> no the worries, holidays, <laughs> but the holidays are the busiest time of the year um, for merchants in any normal year. So with COVID um, and all the things you just said, um, can you just expand on how you think fraudsters change their behavior during the holiday seasons? Sure. Uh, so without questions, I would, I would, I feel confident in saying about 98% of the fraud world um, gears up for the holiday seasons. And what I mean by that is they go out and they, they spend the rest of the year honing their, their skills, honing their, their abilities, making sure that their fake cash, their fake credit cards, they all look good. You know, uh, checks are ready to go. They've done their research. They've built their checklist. They know what works where, what works where. Um, and it's during the holiday season that they know that that's the easiest time to get things through because merchants are more likely uh, to, to bend the rules a little bit in order to just keep the cash cow going. Right. So, what's what is infinitely more effective this year rather or so the difference between 2019 and 2020 is definitely a, there's a stark difference there because of the landscape and the environment and everything merchants are super hungry the problem with that 
the thing that's going to be the biggest issue uh, because of that is the fact that merchants are hungry for the sale more than just looking at this as a way to get positive. They're also looking at a way to make up for losses that took place during the year, especially in the U.S. where there's been a lot of lockdowns and, and even closures. Like there's been a lot of problems with the in-store retails. So both in-store and online, merchants tend to move the needle a little bit um, towards customer satisfaction in order to just keep everything flowing. But fraudsters identify that and they take advantage of that. And they gear up by, by getting their embossers in line, their, their reader writers in line. They've bought all their dumps from the, or the track information dumps from the dark web. They're prepared and they wait for Black Friday because just like with normal consumers, a lot less can go a lot further, right? The same amount can go a lot further with all the Black Friday deals that's going on. So um, at the end of it, fraudsters are getting ready for the holiday season and and merchants need to keep their guard up that's 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 where that comes from um and how did how did you operate as a fraudster during the holiday season because i know in our previous chats you've mentioned that there's one percent of fraudsters who just take the holiday season off um and give themselves a a break um which i thought was really interesting but yeah when you when you were in the game how were were you that 99 percent or that one percent I was that 1%. Um, my operations were solid, thorough. If I wanted to do something, I did it that day. Uh, everything was taken care of during the year. So I, my operations never changed, except for during the holiday season, uh, during which time I just spent, spent time around the family. I spent time doing what I wanted to do. I didn't necessarily gear up and, and, and go, you know, go uh, pedal to the metal uh, in order to exploit the holiday season. I just did what I wanted. There was a couple of things that I would take place in that I would take, um, you know, that I would participate in, but it wasn't my operations. It was just helping other people do what they wanted to do. So I definitely count myself among the 1% that would just sit back and chill. I was, I was good. I never, I never exploited the fraud game to, to be, to live this rich, lavish lifestyle. I used it, um, you know, just to get what we needed with a couple of perks here and there, really. Yeah. And just touching on what you said earlier about policies and merchants just tipping that needle towards customer satisfaction so we've recently done some research about refund abuse and promotion abuse or I think you use the terms return fraud and marketing fraud so we found that in a survey we recently did that over half of the merchants this year have seen an increase in refund abuse and just under half have seen an increase in promotion abuse so what I'd like to ask you is have you seen this increase in promotion abuse and refund abuse? And can you tell us a bit about your previous experiences with these fraud types that are in a bit of a gray area because it tends to be the genuine customers that are doing it? Sure. Uh, so uh, as far as identifying a trend of this year, I think that thanks to the great work that's been done in the industry all the way across the board, a lot of people are becoming aware that they need to watch for that type of stuff. So when they report an increase, um, I feel like there's a, a, a misrepresentation uh, when they use the word increase. I think if you're watching for something, you're going to see it more than if you aren't, right? So if they finally em employed uh, data management in order to track these occurrences, they're going to see it increase because now they're tracking it. They have their their eyes are on the on the prize a little bit more, and every time it comes across, they're gonna they're gonna track that a little bit more effectively and and see the increase. So I think um, although 
I wouldn't be surprised for there to be a real increase because of, again, because of the desperate times that we're in right now. Um, but I think that once you start looking for the red car as you drive down the highway, you're going to see more red cars. You know, I think that's that's kind of the phenomenon that's happening right now. Um, uh, so the second thing is uh, my involvement or my um, what I've seen firsthand in regards to these types of exploits. Uh, the biggest success story was when I was working for that dis uh, distribution company, where in the first six months I was um, promoted to be the manager of the um, the fulfillment center problem area essentially which is the returns the avs um avs address verification stuff like that but in in taking over the returns department i found pallets in the back that that were just stacked and stacked and stacked uh pallets of merchandise and as we started to break that down in order to get it cleared out and get it moved on pushed on returned to vendors whatever it needed we ended up identifying that there was about three hundred thousand dollars that was uh or three hundred thousand dollars worth of, of products that had already been issued credit wrongfully because either the uh the product was never purchased from us the product came back after it was expired um we were getting rocks and 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 stuff in the boxes that that would just beat the weight requirements for shipping which wasn't even necessary because at that company we didn't check it but we would get a whole bunch of ways that people would would, would give this product back and request credit well unknowingly uh the the accounting department issued the credit. Now that's just one customer taking advantage of $300,000 worth of returns uh, over the course, I think it was like the last eight months to that point. So in identifying that along with the several other customers who had done uh, uh, you know, lesser amounts, we kind of put together that it was about $600,000 total uh, over the course of the last year, we'll say, where $600,000 worth of credit had been issued. So that, the the, what makes that so lethal to a company is the fact that once it gets processed, that looks okay. In the books, it's like, that's just how many returns we had. We issued credit and it's done. Uh, the problem with that is it was dishonest and your staff needs to be aware of that possibility um, as you handle these returns. So um, what we did was we put into place new policies. Um, we put into place new practices. We made sure that there was an end date um, for processing. We made sure that there was requirements put on the customer in order to send items back. We, uh, we had two-factor authorization, essentially, where it would be, we would approve it before you could send it back. Um, those, are, those are some tricks that you can do uh, to make sure that you're, you're not getting anything back that you don't expect that hasn't already been approved. Um, and yeah, that that ended up saving the company $1.2 million uh, over the course of the year. Uh, so that's a great example of, of how that can turn bad, but then also be fixed. And then when it comes to the marketing, um, you know, a company sets out, you know, a, a specific stock of inventory, we'll say, for like a buy one, get one promotion. So they expect that they're going to get a bunch of sales from it, um, but they also expect for, for that to be what, what brings customers uh, to their to their uh, platform and they expect to get the life the lifespan right a, a whole lifetime worth of purchases from this customer by sacrificing a buy one get one offer well one way that we saw was getting exploited was one person will sign up 50 different accounts and all have these buy one get ones you know taking advantage of the buy one get one and have those items sent to the same address uh using the same card this is a this is an honest customer taking advantage of a system to the detriment of the merchant. And this is why the, the needle between merchant security 
and customer satisfaction needs to be put in check and needs to be monitored um, because good people, otherwise good people, I should say, are taking advantage of your system. And because merchants don't tend to classify that as fraud, they don't tend to look at it as fraud. Well, understand that the definition of fraud is, is, is you know, not, not Webster's definition, but in my opinion, def the definition of fraud is taking advantage of, of someone under false pretenses and, and there's a loser in the situation, which is 99% of the time going to be the merchant. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, it's amazing how it adds up um, with all these refunds and, and promotions. I think that it's such a pervasive issue, especially coming into this holiday season where everyone's still locked down. There's going to be so much ordering going on to different locations, like people gifting across the world. It's just going to be so hard for online merchants to track their wares um, and yeah. keep, keep tabs on how much, how much it's costing them. So moving on to the, the next question, uh, we've also spoken to merchants who alerted us to more fraud emerging on social media platforms like Snapchat and TikTok, um, as customers have started bragging about their money-saving tips or offering fraud as a service and then profiting themselves. So what are your thoughts on this social media trend and how do you think merchants should approach it? So when I was operating, I made it a clear a clear decision that I never advertised my skills. I never advertised my methods. If someone came to me and asked me how to do something, I would do it. I wouldn't tell them how to do it. I would just do it. Like, here's what, here's, da, 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 here you go. And now it's done. Uh, give me my cut whenever it's done. Um, it was a really tight knit circle, <clears throat> but I never advertised. The reason why, from a fraudster's perspective, why advertising is really dumb um, is the fact that, you know, you're leaving yourself open to you're leaving yourself open to people who if they get busted for a bad practice they have no problem giving over the information that they used when, it, when they contacted you how they came across you blah 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 um so you put yourself at risk so from a fraudster's perspective that's why that's dumb any any unknown uh anytime that you communicate with someone that you don't have a good running history with that you haven't investigated essentially beforehand to know what you know how tough they are uh you put yourself at major risk so that's from a fraudster's perspective in a fraud prevention perspective that's just called research i would say if you come across these things you're not going to stop it from happening but the second you become aware of it you need to you need to be aware of how it, what it looks like when it enters your system um and that's one thing that sets my company apart, or actually I should say, it's one thing that sets my company on its own path is the fact that using my own insight from the other side of the fence, I, I when I work with merchants, I identify all of the ways that they stand to be exploited um, and, and, and work on ways to either identify attacks or attempts. I work on ways to defend the merchant and I work on ways to... Uh, to, to prevent further losses uh, in the future if they've already been exploited. Um, looking at it from a fraudster's perspective is very important. So when you see these guys posting on social media, that's real. If, they, if that sounds feasible, if they, if they sound like they're ripping off your returns department or your marketing or your different policies, take it, take it to heart. Go back to your policies and figure out where these loopholes are and how to identify them when the attempts happen. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess before we finish up, um, I'm sure our listeners would love to know if you have any parting words of wisdom. So what advice or top tips do you have for merchants looking to protect themselves going forward? 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, first things first, identify your transfers of value. Um, not all fraud is represented in transactions and chargebacks. Not all fraud takes place with cash, check, credit cards. You have to consider the difference between a hot dog vendor on the street and a corporate juggernaut. Um, the hot dog vendor on the street you know, might exchange just cash for hot dogs. That's one example. You look at a corporate juggernaut, they have lines of credit, they have drop shipping, they have e-commerce, they have in-store, they have check cashing, they have all these different transfers of value that don't require payment methods. So, and every single one of them stand to be exploited by someone who wants to exploit them. So just identify your transfers of value. And secondly, make sure that your policies and your, your practices are fluid, dynamic, and well-informed. Um, oh, and I guess there's a third. Understand that, that because of the way a fraudster thinks, uh, fraud, if you employ a fraud prevention department, if you have fraud prevention measures that are in place, understand that fraud happens in every department where there is a transfer of value. So going back to that, um, the fraud prevention team needs access and needs to be a part of every department where there is a transfer of value. Um, it's not just one department that sits along by itself and, and looks at credit card transactions because fraud lives elsewhere and they need to be able to look at these different things to see uh, how you might be losing. Um, yeah, they need to stay informed and they need to uh, be a part of the team all the way throughout the team. So, yeah, I think that's that. Those are some good words of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that because I think that is the most important thing is the human insights into fraud because it's all very well having the best tech, the best glitzy fraud prevention tools. But if you haven't got those humans behind it with their own unique perspectives, then it's it's never going to be as agile um, and effective as possible. Right. Thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, well, thank you for speaking with me today. Um, it's been so interesting and I'm sure our listeners will have found it helpful. So please go and enjoy your Thanksgiving um, and forgive me for eating into this chunk of your day. <laughs> no forgiveness required. This is a blast. I'm so happy to be working with you guys and um, and thank you so much for, for, for doing this with me. This is awesome. No, honestly, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And to those of you who are listening, if you found anything we were talking about interesting and want to find more information, you can do so on our website.